Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we have this word of life that reminds us of the things that do not change so that our lives can be properly calibrated, that we need not fear or be anxious here, but that our faith can be renewed and our walk with thee can be sure and steady that we'll one day meet thee in courts of glory. Heavenly Father, we want to pray for, the, pray for those now that uh, have their own difficulties, their own uh, crosses that they need to bear, Heavenly Father, those that are sick and shut in, those that are sick, those that are uh, on hospital beds, those that are grieving, Heavenly Father. There are many in this world whose heart sickness can only be uh, mended by Thee, we ask that thou wouldst be with them, dear Lord. Be with us now as we would open thy word together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've opened to the fourth chapter of the Gospel according to Luke, Luke chapter 4. Let's begin reading at the first verse. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the devil, taking him up into an high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him, through all the region round about. 
And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? I'd like to stop reading with the 22nd verse. This is right at the beginning of Christ's ministry on this earth. It's interesting to me that very little is recorded of his early life. He was already 30 years old at this point. People began their occupations at a young age. Christ himself was no exception. He was taught by his father Joseph. Joseph was still remembered at this point in time, though it seems like he had already passed away. And Christ had learned his trade in the carpenter's shop. His hands would have been work-worn. He would have had probably some scars from slips with the tool. You know, when we read that Christ was perfect, I don't know that that meant that he never made uh, any mistake with a tool or anything like that. I think that perfection was a moral perfection. He did not have sin within his heart. But he would have learned the trade as other young carpenters had, and he would have learned all the tricks from his father, I guess, and learned something of the family business, and already perhaps been in that trade for some 15 years, a seasoned carpenter. I would have liked to have known what it was like to have Jesus do a job for you or to be in the workshop with him. I think it would have been an interesting experience as well. But the scripture doesn't record it for us, and so I guess it's not really all that important for us to know. That's just human curiosity. I know there's times when I'm in my workshop and things aren't going well and I wouldn't really want anyone else around me when they see how angry I get at myself for the mistakes I make. But again, that's just my human nature coming out and I have to repent of the times that I, I get upset. I think sometimes of the words that God said to the prophet Jonah, doest thou well to be angry? think, yeah, I shouldn't really be upset like that over this. It's not that big a deal. Anyway, Jesus came to hear the preaching of his cousin, John the Baptist, 
But it doesn't seem like the two really knew each other very well. It was actually the spirit in John the Baptist that pointed out Christ to him. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And Christ came and was baptized by John. That's a fascinating account to me. We know about Christ that he was filled with the Holy Spirit right from his moment of conception. The angel Gabriel says to Mary during the Annunciation, the power of the, of the, high, the highest shall overshadow thee. The Spirit of the Lord is going to be upon thee. Therefore, that holy thing that is born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Christ was indeed a special child filled with the Holy Ghost. And yet we read in Scripture that after his baptism, when he arose from the water, the Spirit descended like a dove on him. I don't know exactly what that means, but it seems to me that that descending of the Spirit upon Christ, resting on him, was a mark of the power of God now upon him for ministry. His mission began when he rose from that water in baptism. And it's very good and proper, I think, that we practice the baptism of the Holy Spirit as part of our baptism weekend. That is not only a sign that you are Christ's own, that his spirit dwells within you, but you are now empowered. Empowered with gifts from God for the purpose of edifying the body and for ministry. No one is ever called to the back bench in the sense of sit back and do nothing. That's not... Uh, there's, there's work for each one to, to do in the household of faith. And it's interesting to me that shortly after this baptism, it says the Spirit of God sent Jesus into the wilderness you think if you were empowered for ministry, you better get started. There's only three short years now. Every moment is precious. Yet Christ needed that time, apparently, to be set apart, to go into the wilderness. And again, nothing is recorded about his time there. It just simply says he was there for 40 days. And we know that number 40 in the, in the scriptures is, is symbolic of of testing and proving under, under the divine eye of God. Forty days and forty nights. You can find that pattern many times in Scripture. And so this was, again, a period of testing for Christ. Now, why was that necessary? He was the sinless Lamb of God. What was there to test? He was perfect. He wasn't going to fail. He was God come in the flesh. There are many things we don't know. And Scripture doesn't even try to explain to us. I mentioned this before, but I think it bears repeating. Scripture doesn't really explain the exact nature of Christ in the sense that he was God and man. It simply presents the two as truths. Son of God, Son of Man. God come in the flesh, but doesn't try to explain exactly how the two fit together, where the limitations of one were. It just simply reports it and asks us to believe. 
And as a man, we read that he needed to learn obedience by the things that he suffered. Why? Why suffer to learn obedience? I don't know, but it's somehow tied up with our will. It's somehow tied up with our own ideas and our own perception. There's a hymn in the Zion's Harp that talks about the cross being a picture of why it causes suffering. It says, the long beam is God's will in heaven, and the short beam is our will across it lying. And so the cross explains to us why we have difficulties here. Our will is contrary to the will of God and needs to be brought in alignment with his will. We see that finally in the garden where Christ himself said, Father, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, let thy will be done, not my will. And so he shows us the pattern. And so like him, I don't think we should think ourselves above suffering to learn obedience. God doesn't delight in our pain. That suffering is not for his benefit. It's not like we perform some kind of penance to get special favor from God. That if we punish ourselves hard enough or suffer enough, then we somehow get extra favor with God. No. He's a loving father. His love is indeed limitless. Everything about God has no beginning or end. Most of our problems with God, I would say maybe even all of our problems with God, stem from an incorrect understanding of who he is. We think he can be unkind. We think that he wants to see us suffer. We even think we have to pay for our sins when it is clear, abundantly clear in Scripture that they have been paid for because we could not pay. And when bad things happen to us, it's very natural as carnal men and women to think that, well, it must be because I've done something wrong and therefore God is punishing me. That's not the case. He is interested in our heart, our will, not in our pain. But it seems like in order for us to learn, there's a part of us that has to die. There's some suffering that has to be involved for us to let go of our will. And so it was. I fasted before, but I've never fasted for 40 days. And I don't know exactly what that's like. Some of you may remember John Ton. He went in his uh, later stages of cancer. He actually went to a fasting clinic and fasted for some 30 days. I know that for a fact. So for those who think that this is impossible, I can tell you it's not. But it was interesting to see what John testified about his experience at that fasting clinic, that it gave him a, a clarity and a spiritual victory that he didn't have before. There was a 
There was something spiritual about that experience. Not living by bread alone, but by every word of God. And in the end, that's what will happen for all of us. Food will no longer be able to sustain us. One of the signs of death is the loss of appetite, a loss of desire for food. Food can't strengthen us. And though medicine can try to pump nutrients into us and fluids into us to sustain life a little longer, when it comes to the end, nothing really helps. The body slips away. But it's interesting to me that Christ also needed to suffer in this way. And it says, having suffered for us, he's able to succor us, to to, to help us, to support us, to empathize with us. We know that God knows everything. His omniscience is one of his infinite attributes. There is nothing hidden from God. So God doesn't have to learn anything. But I have to tell you, it cheers my heart to know that Christ, as a man, suffered and learned what it was like to be hungry, to be in difficulty, to be in want, to be rejected, to be alone, even perhaps to fear. There was, a, there, was a, there was a dread that came over him with, that, with the coming cross and a heaviness. I don't know exactly what that is, and I don't want to go beyond what Scripture says, what it tells us about him and what he went through. And, of course, the devil comes, and it's interesting to see what he's allowed to touch. We have the story of Job the things that he suffered. And it was interesting to see that whole dialogue that happened in, in, in heaven where Satan somehow has access still to the holiness of heaven. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? And, and Satan has the comment, well, of course he serves you. Don't you give him everything he needs and everything he wants? But if you touch those things, if you take away those things, and God says, okay, you can touch his, his stuff, his things, even his family. And Job experiences catastrophic loss one after another. And it says of him that after all of that happened, he just simply said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What a man that could do that. I mean, God just touches me a little bit sometimes and I go to pieces. Think, how can this be happening to me? Or what, why do I have this difficulty? Nothing like Job. It's interesting to see what happens. God pulls that, tent, that, that fence around Job a little tighter. Finally, he allows Satan to even touch his flesh. and to, He's stricken with boils from the, from the top of his head to the sole of his foot. That must have just been awful. Adding to the, uh, the psychological pain, the emotional pain of the loss, was the physical pain of having that. What a, what a miserable experience. And it's interesting to see that Satan is never given permission to touch his soul. 
It's only the body. And so it's the same way with us, and it was the same way with Christ. Our body is the battleground that Satan fights for possession of, and he, he, he challenges the Son of God on this, on this point, and he, he attacks him right at the point of his identity. Who are you really? Are you someone special? If you are, why isn't God doing something for you? Take things into your own hands. Do something about it. You have a legitimate need. It's a good thing that you want. Why would God withhold food from his son? You would think me a cruel father if I would not give my children proper nourishment. That temptation was not effective with Christ. He had learned already over the past 30 years, perhaps, that the physical bread may come and go, but it's God's word that sustains the soul. The body can endure more than we think it can, I think. I remember reading the, some accounts, I think his last name was Adler. He was a, a, a psychologist who was in the Nazi concentration camps, a Jewish man, and he noted the different ways that people endured the suffering and difficulty of the, the camps and how some went to pieces and went downhill very quickly and perished. And some were able to endure. Those that looked for strength outside of themselves, because, of course, those in the camp, there was no strength within themselves to continue. They had no, no hope or, or prospect of physical deliverance. There had to be something outside of themselves that kept them going. And those that didn't have that quickly fell apart. But Christ here points correctly that it's the word of God that endures. And everything else around us is changeable and finite. The devil then, of course, takes him up into the mountain. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world at a moment in time. The promise of the devil is still the same. Verse 7, all shall be thine. You can have it all. It's all yours for the taking. If you'll only do this. Do this, you can be popular, you can be liked, you can be successful. It seems like all the doors are open. And for a moment, perhaps, the thought may have crossed Christ's mind that what would happen if I would say yes here? The world restored to perfect order, equity, Justice, real justice, real social justice, a righting of all wrongs with Christ as the head of every government and power. What was wrong with that? There would be no cross. There would be no redemption. There would be no possibility of restoration to eternal life with God. Earth, though perfect in the sense of just and right, would be limited. And after that, there would be the judgment for whatever wrong man had done. 
Christ said, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Each of us has a throne in our heart. And we would like to sit as king or queen. We may even be willing to share that throne. But to give it up completely? There's something in us that rises up against that and says no. I learned pretty early in in my Christian walk that many people do not have a problem with Jesus. They don't have a problem with heaven or a Savior even. Those things are not the stumbling block. The problem that they have is giving over their life to someone else. That is really where people put the brakes on. They're willing to go along with everything else. Sure, I can have a Savior. Sure, someone died for me to make the way open for heaven. I I like that idea. Wait, you mean I have to give over control of my life? The decisions that I make? What happens to my money? No, that's too much. I'm willing to go along with Jesus this far. He can have my 10%, perhaps. But the other 90, that's mine. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. The final temptation seems a little confusing, perhaps. The pinnacle of the temple, that point over the, I think it was over the Kidron Valley, some over 200 feet high. That's high, for those of you that have never been that high. I remember when our, my wife and I went to Portugal on our honeymoon, there was a place off the tip, it's the most western, westernmost tip of, of continental Europe, called Cabo San Vicente, I think something like that. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a rocky cape that thrusts out into the ocean. And those cliffs, I think, were around 180, 200 feet tall. There's men fishing off those cliffs. And we're thinking, wow, one misstep, that's a long way down. Christ, on the pinnacle of the temple, maybe shielded from human view somehow, and Satan here uses Scripture. And he says, isn't it written that he's going to bear you up, keep you from dashing your foot against a stone? Go ahead. Again, what was the nature of that temptation? It seems kind of odd. Well, I think if, if Christ had really cast himself off from that pinnacle of the temple, perhaps angels would have indeed caught him and set him down on the temple. And the Pharisees and everyone there would have noticed it and said, hey, this is the Messiah. This is him. Let's crown him king. Again, what's missing? The cross, the rejection, the sacrifice. It wasn't God's way. And in the other record of this, the temptations of Christ, we see a key given, and I think it's a useful one. The will of God isn't found in one verse. 
Satan was able to quote a single verse to Christ. Christ, in the other record of this, says, it is written, and again it is written. It's the whole counsel of God that gives us the truth, and this is why we need to know our Bibles. I think we sometimes forget how blessed we are to not only have copies of Scripture that we can pick up any time and read, but the ability to read them. A good portion of the early church was illiterate. They had to go from Sunday to Sunday on what they remembered, what had been read and what, what had been said. When Paul's letter was read in the church, they had to remind each other what was, what was said, the encouragements that were there. And I can, I can kind of picture it. Someone would say something and someone else would say, no, no, that's not quite what he said. He said something like this. And then someone who would read would go back and check and check that letter again and say, what did he say? What did the prophets say about that? And they would ask one of the Jewish brothers who was well-schooled in the law, and he would share perhaps with his Gentile brothers what the law said or what the prophets had said. And there was iron sharpening iron. We don't do as much of that anymore. We kind of assume that everyone's reading the Bible during the week. But how many of you really do? More than just a couple verses in the morning or falling asleep in the evening a couple more. I, I, I'm persuaded of better things of you, and I'm sure many of you maybe even read the Bible more than I do, and I'm thankful for that. But for those of us that are tempted maybe to slack off and to, to say, well, I, I know it already. This is a familiar chapter. Stop and read it again. Pray. Pray when you read. This is not like any other book. Other books you read, this book reads you. It shows you hidden things about yourself that you weren't aware of. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. Sometimes we're tempted and we go through a difficult time and the Lord teaches us things through that time. We learn things that we can learn no other way. And for a while, the devil may leave us alone. <clears throat> he knew better than to come at Christ again. We read here that he returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. Probably physically weak. Bread didn't immediately show up after this, at least not that we read. He may have stumbled back into Galilee, but he was in the power of the Spirit. And that's what we all need. You know, those that walk in the Spirit shall not perform the, the, the deeds of the flesh, it says in Romans. I'm paraphrasing. But it's true, and perhaps for my brothers and sisters, you've experienced what that's like. When you're close to God, when you, when you, when you, when you realize the, the, the truth and the nearness of the Lord, the things that He's taught you, the things that He's done in your life, it's like the, the temptations that Satan would normally use it just have no effect. It's so easy to say no and to turn away. And so the devil knows, and he leaves us away alone for a while. And then, when we think we have everything under control, when we grow careless, then he comes back. Christ and his ministry 
He tells us what it was for. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. If you cannot identify with your need, Christ has nothing for you. It's only those that hunger and thirst that will be filled. As long as you figure you're sufficient, there's nothing that Christ has to offer you that will have any appeal. It will seem like a loss. But when we see things properly, when we have things in focus, we realize how bankrupt we are, how little we have and how quickly what we think we have can disappear. But here we see in, those, in these verses the, the goodness of God. He says in the end, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister. There wasn't a whole lot more for Christ to say. He said, look, if you have a need, I'm come to help you in your need. If you don't think you have a need, I can't help you. But now, now is the acceptable year. Now the offer is being made. It may not always be made. Christ would not always be with them. And it's the same today. You don't know what the next week will bring. You don't know what will happen when you leave this parking lot, turn on to Weston Road and head homeward. But now is the acceptable time. If you don't know him yet, recognize your need. Recognize how everything around you will one day be taken from you. Then what will you have? Now it may seem like all the kingdoms of the world are offered to you. Now may seem like the, the time of, or, or the, the, the prospect of, of, a, of an exciting, fulfilling life is in front of you. Go forward 40, 50, 60 years, 70 years. If you get that long, what will you be able to take with you? Where will it go? Satan's promises of fulfillment are empty. In the end, he can't promise you anything. What he's promising you is borrowed. Even those kingdoms of the world, he said, they're given to me. But guess what? They're going to be taken back again. Now are the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. The rightful owner is going to come back and reclaim those things. There's been Hollywood movies before that have kind of made comedic situations out of someone who was kind of poor and through uh, chance or luck or whatever it was gets to pass themselves off as someone who's rich and famous and it's not really theirs. And of course, the comedy comes from the fact that their, their lies get exposed. One day, Satan's lies will be exposed too. And he knows that. He knows that. He's like a, he's like a, someone with a, t a terminal disease who's looking to take as many as he can with him by infecting them with what he's got.
Don't fall for it. It's one day going to, one day it's going to be all may be made right. The important thing is that you're on the right side of that. May God add whatever was lacking to what was said. I, I cannot convince you. If you do not have a knowledge of your need, there's nothing that anyone could say up here. Even Christ himself, if he was standing here inside this wooden box, would not be able to convince you. He told them what he had to tell them, and he sat down. I can't really do any different. If you're hungry, if you're thirsty, he can satisfy. But if you're not, I can only pray for you. That's all I can do. There isn't really anything more to say. You may ask, as many others did in the gospel, what must I do to be saved? Or what must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer is the same. Believe on the one who was sent. That takes the work totally out of your hands and acknowledges the greatness of the God that we serve. That's it. It seems too simple. I think we'd prefer elaborate ritual like was given to the Israelites, something more to do that we can do correctly and take pride in having done it correctly. But that's not what God in his wisdom has given us. He's given us the completed work of his son. Will you believe? That belief is something that is not just a one-time decision, not just a saving faith, but requires for you to continue believing because we are still walking by faith. We do not yet see. We don't see him yet fully. So it's each day a conscious decision to believe, a conscious decision to be thankful, a conscious decision to, to believe like Christ uh, did, it says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So when we're going through difficulties, when we are suffering, God doesn't minimize our suffering. He asks us just to look up. Look up and believe. And he leads us. He leads us from faith to faith. And when we look back, we can say, why did I, why did I doubt? Sometimes we even say with Peter, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. I didn't believe. And God gently picks us up and says, next time. You'll do better next time. Having learned this, go on. You know, Peter, when you think about that man and the things that he went through, we were just talking about this the other day or in the car on the way, I think, to the brothers' meeting. Think about what it must have been like for Peter, having been so sure of himself that he was even willing to die for Christ. He had a sword. Christ said, get a sword. He got a sword. He was ready. Sort of, I'm not going to deny you. If I have to die with you, I'll die with you. And then he denies him three times. And then he hears that rooster crow. And he remembers what he said. 
And it says he went out and he wept bitterly. And I think those few words don't adequately describe the pain that that man went through. It wouldn't be a surprise to me if what he, had, what he suffered in that moment was the equivalent of a mental breakdown. To think the last three years wasted and when his Lord needed him most, that's when he denied him. He must have been absolutely crushed by that experience. And yet when the Lord resurrects, he says, go tell the disciples and Peter that I go before them into Galilee. And there he had special instructions for Peter. He said, look, Peter, having learned what you've learned, having gone through what you've gone through, now feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. You're going to be that tender-hearted shepherd, not that brash disciple that had a quick answer for everything. The Lord uses even our mistakes for his glory, and he's so patient with us. When we ever, whenever we ask ourselves the question, why did God do something? The correct answer is really just God out of his goodness willed it. God out of his goodness willed it. He is only goodness. There's no, no evil nor shadow of turning with him. He only wants your good. And the things that he does, he does for our benefit. When we're on the right side of that, on the proper side of that, we see it and we walk by faith. And one day it will be sight. One day it will be clear. And what a blessed day it will be for those who trusted him here. But what an awful day it will be for those who realize it is too late. Don't make that mistake. Realize that now, now is the acceptable time. This concludes our service. Amen.